Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Glad you're all here today. For those of you who have uh, been here earlier in the month, you know we're working through this book called Learned Optimism of Martin Seligman's. And I kind of want to start with just the slightest recap, because we're going to talk a little bit in more depth today about something that we started last week. So last week, we talked about how we can actually measure the degree of optimism or pessimism that exists within us. And in fact, we can do it with some granularity. And last week, I brought up the idea of the three P's. The idea of optimism or pessimism is that we can look forward to and what we look forward to, how we explain what happened, we can divide it up into these three words that start with P. Permanence, pervasiveness, and personalness. So let me give you an example because we'll be talking about it a little bit more. If something good happens, for instance, the permanence is how we view it. Is this a one-shot thing or is it something that's likely to keep on going on? The pervasiveness when something good happens is how well do we think that applies to the rest of our life? And the third piece of it, the personalness, when something good happens, do we take ownership for it? Do we say something like, yeah, things like that always happen to me? We similarly measure the opposite side of things. We measure pessimism using the same three Ps. So when something bad happens to us, again, do we take it personal? Do we think it's pervasive? And do we think it's permanent? And the idea really of this entire book is not only can we actually tell whether we're an optimist or a pessimist, in fact, there's a test in here that will get it down to a fairly fine degree, but it will tell us uh, how we can make a change if we do want to begin seeing the world from a more optimistic standpoint of, of, of seeing the world uh, a little brighter, if you will, a little, a little happier, and with the thought that that will be predictive of our life. If we want that, uh, we're also covering this month how we can achieve that, how we can actually shift ourselves along that scale from pessimism to optimism. And no matter where you are on that scale, we can move. We can actively take a look at that. All right. So last week it was theory. This week we're going to apply the theory. And you might, again, for those of you who know, this gentleman has been around for a long time. This theory has been in existence for some 35 years. So, like, why don't we automatically know about it? Why aren't we all going to optimism school? Or why aren't our teenagers taught optimism in high school and things like that? Is this a real thing? Or, in short, is this something that uh, Dr. Seligman kind of made up? Well, first of all, I want to uh, go through something. Um, because Martin Seligman, in addition to being an author and, and, uh, and somewhat of a psychologist and, and even a brain theorist, also consults to industry. And so one might accurately, I think, wonder, well, if this is true, if this is good, if this can work, why hasn't it been applied to industry? You know what? It has. Let me read to you the the studies that Martin Seligman did in the 1980s. So in 1982, he began consulting for MetLife Insurance. MetLife was going through some trouble at that time. Over half of their salespeople washed out every year. 50% of their sales force 
washed out every year. Can you imagine the cost of that? They estimated that it cost close to $30,000 to fully train, fully staff each salesperson to get them their materials, their training, and everything. They were out half of their sales force every year incurring that $30,000 per new salesperson that they brought in. The vice president of sales had a little idea. He wondered if there might be a connection, some kind of a link between optimism and being a good salesperson. So he hired Dr. Seligman to come in and take a look at it. Well, the nice thing uh, I think was, you know, sometimes business people are, are quick to jump to solutions before they even really know what the problems is. But Seligman talked them into something very clever. He said, okay, so I know you're gonna hire thousands of salespeople this year, right? Before we do anything to them, before we talk to them, before we do anything, let's take this year purely as a year of observation. So when the new salespeople came in, they gave them the optimism test that's right out of the book here, and they did nothing with it other than just record the numbers. Now, they didn't tell the supervisors of the salespeople who was optimistic. They didn't even give the results to the people who took the test, right? Because they wanted it to be fair. Interestingly enough, of course, they had the same 50% washout that year. Guess who washed out? The pessimists. Guess who were among the top sellers? The optimists, yeah. Now, the, of course, the vice president of sales <laughs> kind of probably crossed his shoulders a little bit and said, well, I could have told you that. <laughs> and the reason, of course, is picture what it's like to sell life insurance. In fact, the, the studies show in the industry, you have to be rejected on average of 10 to 12 times before you'll get someone who will even want to talk to you about life insurance, right? So, so, so 10, 12 times in a row, you're going to talk to them, and they're going to, well, they might hang up on you for one thing, call you a name if you're doing it over the telephone, and most of this was telephone sales, right? So, so yeah, picture, you know, most of us would be like, I don't want that job. And yet the pay was really good. The people who could sell well were handsomely rewarded for it. What they discovered was, by taking the test and analyzing it further, that in particular, the P around personalness was the highest measure of success and potential failure. The people who took the good sales personal, and by that, when they sold a policy, the people who were very optimistic tended to say things like, yeah, it's because I'm a good salesperson. They would say yes, because I know I'm getting my client the best deal, the best insurance, the best outcome, and they completely took ownership for it. And for the 12, the 10 or 12 times when they got hung up on or something like that happened, they didn't take that personal. Unlike so many of the people that after a while would say to themselves, I guess I'm just not a very good salesperson. This is like 10 calls in a row. I can't even get someone to sign up for an appointment to talk about insurance. You know, a lot of the people who would wash out would go, I just don't have the training. I'm not good at this. I'm not cut out for it. I guess I'm just not a salesperson. The good salespeople were completely unfazed by the 10 rejections. They would say things, they wouldn't even just say that was a bad customer. They would say things like, I guess she's not ready for insurance right yet. Maybe I'll call her back. 
can you imagine someone just hangs up on you and your reaction is, I guess she's just not ready for insurance right now. Maybe I'll call her back some other time. This, however, is the characteristic in particular that was at work in these salespeople that made them so successful. Now, does that mean we all want to be salespeople? Probably not. Does that mean um, that sales or, or those kinds of activities are, are, are where we want to end up in life? Who knows? Maybe yes, maybe no. But what I do know is he did a variety of studies in other industries. And what's interesting is you could almost equate success equals optimism, not just in sales, but also in service, in production, in all manners of business out there. The employees that were more optimistic were happy. They were better at their jobs. They had an indwelling sense of job satisfaction, even when things didn't go well. By and large, they liked the places that they worked in better. And of course, now think about this. They liked the places that they worked better. Now this is someone who's sitting right next to someone who doesn't like that place, right? The place is the same, right? It's not like you go down the hall and the, the, the company becomes a less good place to work. And yet what they discovered was that people who were optimistic actually liked their jobs and their employers more as well. No matter how you look at it in the variety of studies in this book, it shows that our relative success at any number of careers is based on our level of optimism. Okay, now some of you out there, I hope, are thinking, well, what if it's just this guy that's kind of got a theory and is proving it? Do you know what I mean? I mean, sometimes that happens. This guy has made, I don't know, probably some millions of dollars on this theory in this book. But what, you know, what if it's just him? So I did my job and I did a little independent research. And there, because this theory has been around for some time, there are actually dozens of studies on optimism. And I took just one of them. Uh, by another MD doctor, uh, studying it with the idea, well, is there a link between good health and optimism? And so I thought I'd share that with you today, just to show it's not, you know, just one person's theory. So here's uh, what this Dr. Sillelik uh, says. He says, we all know a, a type of person. They hope to plug into you and suck out all the positive energy that exists in the world. <laughs> and when I see them heading towards me, I duck and cover. Unfortunately, these people may not realize that their pessimistic or cynical attitudes are not only bad for their health, but it may actually kill them. And he goes on to cite from four different scientific studies. Uh, one of them, a, a recent study this year, looked at 6,000 people who were part of the health and retirement study. During a two-year period, the participants were administered a test called, well, and it's the test from this book, interestingly. So they, they use the same measurement, which measures a person's optimism and pessimism. The study suggested that optimism has a protective effect against having a stroke. Optimists had far fewer strokes per capita than pessimists. 
A 2009 study published in Circulation looked at 97,000 women who were tested for optimism and cynicism. Now, this one's a little different, and it was a different test that they did. So versus optimism and pessimism, they used optimism and cynicism. The most cynical women had a higher incidence of coronary heart disease and vascular death, while optimist, optimistic women had lower rates. And, uh, and you know, the, there's several other studies here. In fact, this one was of students. Another study tracked uh, 7,000 students at the University of North Carolina. The pessimistic individuals had higher death rates and were more likely to utilize medical services and develop depression and poor health. And then this one is stunning because they actually followed these uh, young people for 40 years from this, uh, this study of 7,000 of them. Over a 40-year period, the death rate was 42% higher amongst the most pessimistic group. 42%. Now, this, uh, this gentleman here, this doctor, I think, brings up an interesting question, though. He says, which came first, the chicken or the egg? He poses the question... Might we not ask whether being optimistic leads to better health or whether better health leads us to be optimistic? And so he also looked at some studies that that he feels did a good job of clearing the field in that. Uh, Double blind studies and things like that where they followed people over a long period of time. And once again, the results would seem to indicate that our attitude of pessimism or optimism is actually causative. So where does this leave us? I'll tell you where it leaves me. I'm more interested than ever in checking out how I view the world. Now, for a couple weeks ago, we said that the way that we do this is just to simply observe ourselves, be a little bit, if you will, uh, on, on that edge of noticing what's going on in your lives, and when something good happens, how do you explain it? Do you explain it in terms of, yeah, something good happened, and you know what? It's likely to happen again. That's the idea of permanence. When something good happens, we tend to say something like, and you know what, this isn't all. There are good things popping up all over. That's the idea of pervasiveness. And finally, when something good happens, we take ownership of it. We say things like, yeah, this, this good thing happened and I deserve it. This good thing happened and, and I'm right in the middle of it. Good things always happen to me. Likewise, when things bad happen, we tend to minimize the three Ps. So if something rotten happens in your life, uh, let's distance ourselves from it a little bit. Not that we don't have to pick up the pieces, not that we don't have to act on it. There are always things in the world that we need to do. But our conclusions about the way the world works, we probably ought to minimize the three Ps. And and I would use maybe even an example from my own life. Uh, You know, my partner and I rarely get into fights, but every now and then we have our disagreements. And uh, I was thinking the other day, when those disagreements happen, what do I tell myself? First of all, I generally say things like, where did that come from? That's so unlike us. And the second thing that I usually tell myself is, thank heavens, this doesn't happen very often, and, it, and it's kind of isolated to this one 
this one area, right? So there's no pervasiveness in there. And finally, now this may sound a little bit narcissistic and I don't care. Because <laughs> the other thing I do is I don't assume the blame for it right? A lot of people would say, oh shoot, I'm just not good at relationships. Or they'd say, I was afraid this was going to happen. All my relationships have their rocky moments. Instead, I just tell myself it was something that happened. And that I know in my heart, love is at the bottom of it. Do you see what I mean? I do not put the blame for bad things except when it requires a bit of learning. Now we all end up doing things now and then that we wish we had done differently. And there's where the learning situation comes in. That's where we can choose to do something differently next time. So pessimism isn't the idea of completely, or excuse me, optimism isn't the idea of completely ignoring when bad things happen. We do learn from them. The thing we need to avoid is using the bad thing to predict what's going to happen in the future. So we take our learning, we act upon it, we make a note for next time if there is some behavior in me that needs to change or some outcome, but then we look forward to the good. We plan for the sweetness. We look through the, the, the current issue of whatever unpleasantness it is and just say, that was a blip and I'm moving on because life is sweet. Are you ready for a tiny bit of homework this week? All right. My homework has a, a two, two opportunities for you. First of all, because Seligman says, and I believe that this has a bearing in all aspects of our life, I would invite you simply to pick an area of your own lives where you'd like to see some improvement. Maybe it's business, maybe it's your health, but I tell you, from the evidence in the book, I would say this works for any area of your life, whether it's relationships, whether it's work, whether it's uh, something going on with your condo board or whatever it is. Pick an area in your... That was a random thought, by the way. <laughs> Pick an area in your life where you'd like to see some improvement and wait for things to happen in that area. So let's say you've picked on maybe your primary relationship and something, something a little bit iffy happens. Where do you go with the three Ps? Do you take it personal when something bad happens with your, your, your primary, maybe your best friend or your partner, do you take it personal? Do you think it's going to last for a long time? Do you think it's going to enter into other areas of your life? If the answer to any of those is yes, start working on it. Start minimizing those thoughts. Tell yourself different truths. Tell yourself just because it happened before does not mean it has to happen again. Just because this negative thing happened to me doesn't mean that other areas of my life are going to blossom into negativity. Think of it as simply something that happened. Now, if there was something worth making a note, something worth making a change, you know, mental note. No to self, I will not do that again. <laughs> and that's fair. But the story we tell ourselves is what? The story is that the trouble is very impermanent. The trouble is very temporary. The story we tell ourselves about the future is things are getting better. The story that we tell ourselves about what will happen next is that life is full of the potential of good. Likewise, if something good happens to you, and here's the touchy part, I think, because so often when things good happen good in our lives, wonderful things happen to us, 
we tend to take them a little bit for granted. We tend to kind of just sail over them. And at the end of the day, we go, yeah, this was a good day. It's like, you know, right on. I would suggest to you that those are opportunities for playing up the three Ps. So if something unusual, uh, something wonderful, something sweet happens to you, let's claim ownership. Let's say, you know, this kind of thing happens to me a lot. Why? Because I'm unique and wonderful. There is something in me that just now, and I know some of you are going, oh, there's Larry heading down the narcissistic road, and I give you full permission to do so, because in my experience, we are our own worst critics. And so I think it's time for a little optimism even around our own selves and how we show up in this wonderful universe. I think it's time for us to claim our greatness, our sweetness, our ability to love. And if it sounds like we're tooting our own horn, I don't care because I'm just doing it in my own head. So when something wonderful, when something beautiful happens to you, Claim it. Yes, I was a part in this. The sweetness of life is, is part of who I am. And the sweetness of life extends outward into the world, into other areas, into other evidences, into other ways of being. Life is good and getting better. So we were talking a, a minute ago about, uh, about health issues, and so I wanted to share uh, my joke with you today because it's about health issues too. So at the end of a patient's annual checkup, The physician summed things up. Ready complexion, intermittent headaches, stressful job and lifestyle, plus I see you're carrying around at least 30 extra pounds. You can't be surprised to learn that you have high blood pressure. Well, it does figure, I guess, doc. It's in my family. Your mother's side or your, your father's, said the doctor. Well, neither, replied the patient. It's from my wife's family. Well, now, come on, said the doctor. How can your wife's family pass along high blood pressure? Have you, have you met them? <laughs> but you know, what, what I, it wasn't that funny. Just wait a minute. <laughs> but you know what? Even in that silly joke, have you noticed the three Ps are at work, right? The key to good health was right in that joke. Because we're not going to take anything that's going wrong personally. We're not saying it's uh, pervasive that, oh, first my blood pressure and then next it'll be something else. Do you see, even in the smallest things in life, if we approach it with the three Ps, we can make a difference. Now, for some of us, working on the three Ps will seem kind of crazy at first. I've been doing it for about three weeks now, and I took the test as kind of the first thing before we even started this series, and there were a couple areas on the test that I wanted to work on, and for the first two weeks, it was like, oh, great. Every time I think, I have to think about my thinking. (laughs) But I will tell you, into week three, it is much easier I'm becoming simply more optimistic and I'm not having to catch myself doing some of the, especially the negative personalness that I used to do. On my score, where I came out low was on the personalness one. When things would happen that were wonderful, I'd always say, oh, it was because of her. It was because of him. It was because the timing was right. It was, do you know what I mean? In short, I took no credit for a lot of my own success. I've been working on that one for about three weeks. 
two weeks a little tough, it's getting much easier. It is getting much easier to recognize that life is good and that I'm a piece of it. So, homework, remember, you're going to look for some things that go right and you're going to analyze the three Ps. You're going to look and notice a few things that didn't go the way you like. You're going to work on minimizing the three Ps. And let's check out next week and see how we're doing, okay? And if it seems a little tough, that's okay because we're doing something new. We're trying out something that we haven't done before. It's okay if it's a little bit tough. I'm going to close today with a a quote from Seligman and how he ends this chapter on the idea of applying optimism in the world and in our own lives. He says, can we learn the skills of optimism but still retain pessimism when it's necessary? I believe we can. For evolution has allowed us one more thing. Like the successful company, we each have in us an executive who balances the counsels during uh, da- the counsels of daring against the counsels of doom when optimism presents to us a chance and pessimist- pessimism bids us to cower that part of ourselves heeds both that executive in us is our consciousness. It is this entity to whom is addressed the most basic point of this book. We can learn to resist pessimism's constant callings, even as deep-seated in the brain or in habit as they may be. We can learn to choose optimism. Let us pray. There's one power, one presence, one life, one light, There is one source of all goodness on this planet, and this planet has good within it. It is this thing that I call God or Spirit. It is the source of all good, and I know that means me. Without any trace, I think, of self-puffery, I will say that I myself am right in the midst of God and therefore right in the midst of God's good. And as it is true for me, it is true for each person in this room. Each person here is the, the universal center of their own world filled with God's good. And as we look forward to it, as we accept it in our heart, as we, we begin to anticipate it, as we, we look at the personal nature of our good, as we begin to see how pervasive it is, as we look towards an infinity of time of good things, good people, good times coming into our lives, it's causative. It has that effect of health, of success, of happiness, And so for each person in this room, I I extend my hand in willingness to try out these thoughts, to to give optimism or increased optimism a chance in our lives. And so I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for God's good, whether it be in the mind, in the body, in the world. I'm grateful for life itself. I just let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you're here. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, 
ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.